Welcome to the Da Vinci Hour, a podcast series that interviews individuals across the field of medicine to help provide an inside look into their experiences and provide insight on how to navigate the journey of becoming a physician. My name is Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and I will be your host. This podcast is brought to you by Da Vinci Academy, a medical education company that provides online video courses, outline format books, and clinical case videos for students studying the medical basic sciences. You can check out all that DaVinci Academy has to offer at www.dbiacademy.com. All right, everybody, welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. This is our 10th episode, and for this, we've got a great guest, uh, probably my longest time mentor in medicine, uh, Dr. Joe Lahora. I'm very excited to have Joe on the podcast here. Uh, he's uh, generously given us his time. Uh, a little background on Dr. Lahora. He's the chief of cardiac surgery and then the chairman of the Heart Vascular Institute at the Cleveland Clinic Akron General Hospital in Akron, Ohio. Um, he started his career at Tufts where he got his bachelor's and then he got his MD from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, did his general surgery residency at University Hospitals of Cleveland, uh, Case Western Reserve University at Cleveland, Ohio. Um, and then he did a two-year research fellowship during that time at uh, Mass General Hospital in Boston uh, and for cardiac surgery, and then did his cardiothoracic surgery fellowship at the University of Michigan. Um, so, Joe, great to have you on. Welcome. Uh, thanks, Max. Thanks for thanks for asking to do this. this. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, awesome. you and I we go way back. I, I uh, remember when you were you were rotating as part of your senior uh, high school project. On our service, we had you in the OR, and uh, um, and then you kept coming back. <laughs> you, never, <laughs> yeah. you never left. That's and right. It was fun for me. It was great. We had a good time, and and um, I, I I really enjoyed those days an awful lot. We had some long days together, and we just we it was fun to be with someone who was enjoyed being there. I was excited, interested, and smart, and and, and had a great sense of humor. So um, <laughs> that was just those were really good days. Yeah, no, I, you know, I go ahead. Yeah, no, no. So I, it just it, it points out to me that, uh, you know, when you were with me in the service, it makes you think about your career as a cardiac surgeon, like why you went into it. And mm-hmm. it makes you yeah. think about what you're doing because you're, you're teaching someone who's interested and in trying to give them perspective on on the field and, and what it's like at a professional and personal level. Um and so that, it was very good for me. I mean, it, it was good for you, you know, because you got to see a lot of cool stuff and you got some, you got to learn a lot about heart surgery and about medicine practice is good for me because you, you have to teach someone and think about what you're really doing. And, and uh, so it was very beneficial to me as well. Yeah, no, I look very fondly on those days. I certainly, that was my first real intro into, into the world of medicine. Obviously to this day, it still, still inspires me to, to keep going and uh, what I do today. And so, uh, yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, I think one thing when I think back on that was, is just how much impact you can have on patients' lives, like through clinical care and, you know, right. specifically cardiothoracic surgery too. Yeah. Um, so I think, uh, you know, I gave a little bit of your bio, maybe tell us about your current position, like kind of what sure. type of patients do you see? What type of pathology do you see? Like what, yeah. what are your typical like procedures and things like that? So I, I'm, I do adult cardiac surgery. I do uh, adult thoracic surgery as well. Some, some adult thoracic surgery, but I primarily do cardiac surgery at this point. Um, and, um, so I, I treat, uh, patients, care for patients who have, um, you know, um, usually, usually acquired disease of the heart, some congenital disease of the heart, but mostly acquired disease of the heart. You know, coronary artery disease is the preponderance of what we see, you know, obviously, um, very prevalent in American society, um, surprisingly prevalent amongst, amongst young people in American society with uh, obesity and diabetes and smoking and all, all these lifestyle habits um, that uh, predispose to vascular disease, um, but to also do a, a lot of uh, valve work, aortic valve work um, for aortic stenosis, a lot of aortic stenosis, both senile um, calcific disease as patients get older, but also a lot of bicuspid disease patients who are, who are, are born with the bicuspid aortic valve predisposing to aortic disease, um, mitral valve disease, a lot of de- degenerative um, primary mitral regurgitation, some secondary mitral regurgitation. Um, in the past couple of years, the, the opioid pandemic has sent us a lot of 
Um, endocarditis patients who have valve disease, a lot of that, the tricuspid valve, mitral and aortic valves, um, and then also aneurysm work, um, some arrhythmia work with um, for atrial fibrillation, a number of procedures for that. Um, many combined, you know, con concomitant procedures, patients have aortic disease and coronary disease and, and atrial fibrillation. Sure. Um, and uh, so that's, that's primarily what we treat. I, I think um, probably the, the, the most important part, the most important development over the past few years for me, when I look back at when I started off and where we are today, um, and, and that is the importance of a heart team approach to the care for these patients. Mm -hmm. So I start off, I have to be honest, when I start off, you, you get a call from a, a cardiologist that I just can't someone in a cabbage in their room 402. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and you would go see them and, and, uh, tee them up for surgery. Um, um, and there wasn't much discussion about it, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, that's just not a very good way to do things, <laughs> you know, and, and looking back, I was like, we, we just, it just wasn't a very, very thorough approach to things today. We have a, a, a heart team approach where I work very closely with, uh, first of all, other cardiac surgeons. Um, we're not in silos, um, you know, working totally independently or, comp or at worst competing against each other. And we work very closely with interventional cardiologists uh, general cardiologists uh, were part of the evaluation and decision-making process. And then also increasingly as we work in structural heart realm with um, aortic and mitral valve disease and um, uh, especially now also as TAVR, you know, the catheter-based aortic valve replacements have become uh, very preeminent. Uh, we're looking at, uh, we, we need a, a cardiac imaging specialist. Mm -hmm. So cardiac imaging is, is, uh, informs us tremendously now. So in my practice, um, I don't really uh, evaluate uh, patients in a in a solo sort of way. We you know we we meet we meet um, uh, weekly to review just you know, virtually every case. First, certainly difficult cases, but virtually every case to decide mm -hmm. what's the best strategy for dealing with a particular coronary anatomy or a particular valve problem. So yeah, we we work as a heart team uh, and. Uh, determine the best course of evaluation, the best course of treatment. And even our clinic with, with um, the, um, with the TABR technique, the catheter-based valve implants that are now done, um, patients, we have to decide, and patients have to decide, we work together to decide what's the best approach to replacing the aortic valve. Is it surgical aortic valve replacement or catheter-based aortic valve replacement? And um, so we, we have a, a joint valve clinic now. So it's, it's oh, staffed wow. by myself and other cardiac surgeons and interventional cardiologists and our nurse practitioners um, and patients are seen by us simultaneously. Wow. And evaluate simultaneously. And then, and then we have shared decision-making with the patients. Um, so, so it's truly like a multidisciplinary approach now. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so it's pretty cool. So, so using um, aortic valve disease as, as probably the preeminent example, um, they get referred to us and they're seen in their clinic by the cardiac surgeon, the interventional cardiologist and their nurse practitioners. And then whatever workup is done or is recommended. And then the data goes to a valve committee, which comprised of, of many of us. And the case is reviewed and decision-making is, is uh, decided upon. Um, and then the procedure is done jointly by a cardiac surgeon and an interventional cardiologist. So this is truly, you know, very collaborative and, it's a, it, I found it to be incredibly beneficial and very gratifying. So, I, I mean, I, 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 I've learned so much from working, you know, directly with my interventional cardiology colleagues. Um, we've, and we're working with imaging specialists and mm. our understanding of the valve disease and the various interventions is so much more um, uh, detailed and in depth than it ever was. And I really can't imagine pressing it any other way. Um, I, th I think the other benefit to this or aspect of it is that, um, you know, we are all functioning as a heart team and there is no, there's, there's no competitive interest that, that skews our decision-making. Mm 
it really is what's best for the patient and uh, evidence, we try to be as evidence-based as possible. And um, and I think patients really appreciate that when they see you know, the, their doctors and the nurses working together and coordinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's one big change I've seen over the years since I first started out. Um, um, and I would say too, another aspect of things that has changed is um, we, we work very, you know, obviously we're, we're primarily concerned about patient safety and outcomes, um, you know, making sure that patients get the very best care. And, uh, and that, that involves a lot of, um, you know, optimization now of patients, which was, was uh, when I first started out was not really, you know, on our radar screen. It's like, you know, you kind of assess them for other things that might make them very high risk for surgery. Today, we, we spend a lot of time evaluating patients and optimizing them for surgery, mm-hmm. trying to minimize the things that we know are bad for patients, like you know transfusion, um, trying to optimize pulmonary function, nutrition, um, mobility. Um, so, um, and that, inv- that involves a lot of pr- you know, protocol-driven um, assessment and care, um, which, um, a corollary of that is the importance of, you know, checklists in maintaining safety in cardiac surgery. So that's another evolutionary thing in cardiac surgery. Uh, you know, if you probably have you read Checklist Manifesto by uh, Gawand? Tool yeah, Gawand. I th- yeah, I think I have a tool Gawand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so th- you know, that's that's a very important part, aspect of what we do. You know, I, I often when I'm talking to patients and talking about risk. One of the most important things a cardiac surgeon does in, in talking to patients is assessing risk. What's mm-hmm. the risk? What, what are the indications for a procedure? What's the risk? How do we how do we just discuss that with patients? And um, so I I try to assess risk and and accurately communicate to patients what the risk of surgery is. Uh, fortunately, today risk for most patients is very low, and part of that is because of the one, the multidisciplinary approach to the, the perioperative optimization, um, and then um, you know pro- protocol-driven care that that uh, aims at achieving um, evidence-based guidelines and um, interventions and um, um, processes. Mm-hmm. I can tell you with with those those. Um, important themes in cardiac surgery, and I think in surgery in general, um, we've been able to achieve some really great things. You know, we, today we, we are able to offer cardiac surgical care to patients who need care and, and, and get them through um, some big operations and some difficult times with, with fairly low risk and very good outcomes. Um, and that's important because, you know, uh, cardiac surgery is, it's a, it is a, uh, by its nature, you're dealing with a vital organ and patients who can't be very ill. And there is the um, potential for, you know, very serious complications, uh, life altering complications or death, um, sometimes very unpredictably. And so those, those components, I think, you know, the fact that we work together as a team, we try to optimize patients, we, we have protocol driven care, uh, looking for for highest quality, um, that is uh, um, that's that's been able to drive really good outcomes. I, I think too, from the the this, from the personal satisfaction standpoint, I tell you what I, what I have found both the most powerful thing in my practice and uh, the most powerful thing in terms of getting good outcomes and patient satisfaction is functioning as a team. Mm-hmm. Cardiac, sports, cardiac surgery is a team sport. You can't do this without the team, people. Absolutely. Uh, but if you're not functioning as a team, um, you're just not gonna. It's just not gonna go as well. So I. That's one thing. As a. As a. Um, as a, a, a. In my role as a leader in cardiac surgery, and and, and now more recently as in the department, what I found very satisfying is the um, effort to uh, to put together teams of people, you know, highly motivated people um, yeah, who work together well as a team, who are interested in best outcomes, 
And um, one of my, my greatest satisfactions is taking, you know, particularly advanced practice, um, uh, uh, you know, nurse practitioners and physician assistants and also junior staff and giving them responsibility um, and and goal you know goals and and, and the freedom to um, to move things forward um, and um, that's very satisfying. We're going to take a quick break to let you know the Da Vinci Hour podcast is brought to you by Da Vinci Academy, which provides online video courses for the medical basic sciences. These courses are taught using a variety of teaching methods, including bullet point outlines, diagrams, radiology images and chalk talks to explain the fundamental concepts. We then teach the application of those concepts to numerous clinical pearls that are frequently tested on medical school exams and the USMLE. Our video courses are available on our website, dviacademy.com, as monthly subscriptions starting at $9.99 per month. Each video course has a corresponding outline format textbook as well. You can find the link to our website in the description below. Also, be sure to use the discount code TDH20 to receive 20% off any of our video courses. All right, now back to the podcast. So anyway, that's, you know, I, so yeah. So I, what do I do every day? <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess uh, maybe just walk us through like your, your tip, like your typical inpatient day. Like when you have, you know, like surgical cases, like when you're okay. around right. stuff like that, like what time so, do you get there? So I start early. I have to, I, I don't live in Akron. I live a bit away. So I, so I, I get there a, a bit before seven, like usually about six forty-five, um, and I have um, typically I have a case to do. Most days I have cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's not my office day, I have one one day a week which is an office day. Um, I go and we do uh, we meet the patients in the pre-op area. We do what's called a huddle, which is a safety um, uh, protocol. So we meet the patient, um, the, the anesthesia team, assisting team, the um, Perfusion team, they're all there. They meet the patient and um, uh, we go through the play of the day. We make sure that, that all the, the essentials, all the quality indicators are met to make sure that they've had their aspirin, their beta blocker, and the blood's available, that the devices are available. We know exactly what we're doing, that everyone's questions are answered. It's an opportunity for any, anyone to speak up and say, what about this? Or we forgot this. Um, so that when we go back to the room, there's no there's no question about what's going to happen. So we do the huddle, um, and then the patient gets taken to the operating room, and at that time, anesthesia gets their various intravenous lines and monitoring lines going. They don't need me around for that. So at that point, um, I will either go to a, a meeting, like the heart team meeting, which is from around 7.15 to about 8.15. Usually by then, the patient's ready for me. Um, or uh, and or make my you know, quick rounds through the unit with the uh, our nurse practitioners and PAs to make sure everyone is moving forward. Um, look at the previous day's cases and, and that sort of thing. So then we get and then I get started on the case. And again, it's a team effort. I I do um, the you know the sternotomy and uh, cannulation for cardiopulmonary bypass and harvesting of in, internal mammary arteries, etc. And the uh, highly really talented uh, uh, physician assisting team um, gets going on harvesting either vein graft or radial artery graft or both. Um, and that's, I like that. I mean, I have these, these are advanced practice people who are practicing at the top of their license independently. I, they do things I cannot do. I, I can't harvest endoscopically. I don't know how to do that. So, the, oh, so wow. I, I have to have them do it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you have to have the right people for it and you mm-hmm. have to, Track the right people and keep them on the team, and, and keep them happy. And we and we try to do that by, as I said, by giving them a lot of leeway and, and responsibility. Sure, sure. So, so that those cases typically, you know, they're long cases. They're not, you know, heart surgery is not quick. Um, it's several hours, you know, the uh, mm-hmm. go. So we we get going and we get on pump and we do our work and then we come off pump and close up. And again, I work very closely with anesthesia in this in terms of. Uh, making sure that you know we we do that everything is looking good. We do intraoperative echo on everybody, make mm-hmm. sure the heart functions good, and we we check the grafts, make sure those are flowing, make sure the valves we put in are working. Um, we make sure that uh, there's no surgical bleeding. Uh, make sure they're ventilating okay, etc. And go through again checklist. I sign out, you know, mm-hmm. uh, with our team, and then they go to the intensive care unit, and there we check 
we do another checklist again at the bedside mm-hmm. to make sure that the, the team receiving the patient knows what's going on. Sure. That's a big game changer too. I can tell you when I first started in practice, we would just, we'd drop the patient off in the ICU and like, you know, we'd take off and go do the next thing. And you get calls all night and there'd be questions about what's going on. But we do a formal sign out that where the nursing staff receiving the patient knows exactly what's going on and you know what's going on. And, um, and most of those patients, be, you know, when I started in practice, patients that had heart surgery were usually intubated all night. They were kept sedated. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's it was, crazy. That was it was cra- yeah. They were intubated all night. And the next day you come in, tell them, okay, go ahead and wean. Today, I mean, we've vertical driven, they're, they're, you know, extubated in just a couple of hours and they're very quickly. And this is really beneficial. This has changed, um, uh, changed uh, a lot for patients. Wow. Yeah, we move quickly. They're extubated quickly. The next day, most you know, the lines come out, and with the day, the chest tubes come out, and got to bed into a chair by the next morning, and they're walking the next day, up and moving, and hopefully home within about five days. That's the goal. That's pretty amazing. That's I yeah. mean, for such a operating on such a critical organ and uh, yeah. such a, and yeah. and you know, a somewhat invasive procedure to to have someone back. Yeah, where they came from in five days is pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, so it, it 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 amazes me too. Uh, but I, I think that what's impressive about it is just it's it's a whole team of people working together, and you have all these protocols in place, and you just have to make sure they're all being paid attention to. I you know I I I often look at it like um like you're flying a plane, you know, and, and I think Atul Gawan some of the checklist manifesto came from the fact that. You know, there are millions and millions of passengers flying every year without any deaths. Mm-hmm. That wasn't always the case because they've, they've introduced checklists into the you know air, um, airline industry. They're very careful, and we've emulated that. And um, but I, I, talk, I, I look at this the same way. Like when I want to look at a patient and trying to assess risk, I want to make sure before we take off that everything's working and everything mm-hmm. we know where we're going and we got enough fuel and we have everything we need. So I, I look at that as like the last check before you run down the runway. And then um, same thing when you're landing, you gotta have everything, you gotta have everything ready to go and you know where what you're doing. Um, but, um, and it results in uh, amazing things. I mean, people come in who are very ill and um, who are looking at the prospect of, you know, heart failure or death. Um, and um, it's very gratifying to take them through that, that path and get them to their side. Um, and, and I find that's, I would say that, you know, if I was to say, what's my biggest satisfaction doing this? Um, I think that that's it, you know, I mean, to, to, to have a, a patient, to take someone successfully through that and, and see them recover and, and doing very well. And, and um, that's, that's very, very gratifying because there are some really sick people that we help to get back to normal life or and relieve their suffering. Um, and then the other thing, as I mentioned, the team aspect of this is I, I like, it's one thing that drove me to correct surgery was working working as part of a team doing something critical it's not you know it's not minor stuff i do find the life and death aspect of it although it can be very uh tense sometimes and 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 it has its emotional toll at times i think that that's something that i find very important to me um and um there's also a technical aspect i mean i like i like doing the technical part of creating surgery i mean i like I like, um, it's very fine work and it's very technically dependent and you have to do a technically competent job and, and your outcome is very dependent on your technical competency, you know? Sure. Um, and, um, so that's, it's, you know, that's a challenging thing too. And, and it, uh, for, for people that are considering that career to think about that, it takes, it takes time to develop that technical competency. Sure. That's why the training doesn't so just, come, yeah, right. It doesn't, it doesn't come overnight, you know, and, and, um, and you have to, it takes time to do it. It's like anything else, you know, you, you can't, and no one is an automatic at it. No one, you know, you got to develop it over time. Sure. Yeah. And you're always, you're always learning. I mean, you know, this, you're always learning, you, you know, right. nothing yeah. stays the same and you, you, and 
you know, you come out of your fellowship, you think you know everything, think you've seen everything. It's like, no. no. Like within, a day, <laughs> within a day, you're like, I've never seen that before. What do I do now? I don't know. I don't know. What to do. I st- it happens to me still. Like I've been doing this for 20, 25 years. And I still have things I, I've never seen, don't quite know how to handle. But that makes it interesting. You know, it's uh, if we do the same thing every day, it'd be very dull. That's yeah. one thing that, that we find funny. Heart teams find funny because there are other, other surgical specialty teams are like, why do, why do you want to do that? It's like the same operation all, all the time. Like just do a bypass. Like, no, everything is, every single one is totally unique. I think you remember that too. Like, yeah. The, oh yeah. Yeah. Everything's, everything is a unique situation. And um, so, so to say that it's, this, you know, that's re- repetitive, I think is, is, is really just don't understand what we, what we do. No, no. I mean, there's people's anatomy are different. People's comorbidities are different. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. The strategies, the, the revascularization strategy is different. It's, it's always, it's always a unique situation. Sure, sure. So, so how, how's your your favorite day of the week? Your and I say that jokingly, the, the office day, office your clinic. Day. Your clinic. <laughs> um, well, my clinic day. You know, uh, I know what you're talking. About. Like it's when. when if you were to compare operating to clinic day, I mean, operating is a whole lot more fun than clinic day for me. Sure, sure. Because clinics are just a lot, you just talk a lot all day. And yeah. <laughs> and I don't like, but I find difficult about clinic. I don't like about clinic is that you have to make some decisions fairly quickly. You know, patients come to you and you see, you, you have to synthesize data very fast and come up with some kind of plan very fast. When patients are inpatient, you have time. You can see them and go, hey, we'll, we'll get back to you. So I like to sure. think about things, you know, cogitate on things a little bit. Um, and in the office, it's hard. You don't have time to sort of do that. People, there's, there's a time pressure. People are waiting. They keep mm-hmm. waiting. They get, they get annoyed. And but I think um, I, mean, I still enjoy talking to patients and, and seeing patients in the office and um, formulating a plan. I, as I said, I particularly enjoy our, our valve clinic because it's a, it's a collaborative clinic. I mean, we are constantly teaching each other um, and um, uh, you know, discussing and debating cases, and, and sure, and I like that. Like, I like, like working with another brain in the room. Um, and we look at uh, imaging together. We have this big, big screen monitor on the wall, and we pull up the echoes and the cats and um, uh, review all that stuff. Um, but one thing I found very important in office is is the. Um, um, it's essential to have uh, uh, advanced practice help. Mm-hmm. So I, when I do office, um, I see I pretty much see all new patients in office. Okay. New consults with my nurse practitioner. And as we're finishing up our discussion, the nurse practitioner helps to get everything ordered and referred and and, and gets the ball rolling. Um, and uh, and then they also do all of our our follow ups. The the Post-op follow-ups are seen by our nurse practitioners. It's pretty standard visits at one week and, and about a month after surgery. Okay. And if they have an issue that, that they feel we need to address, we, we, we take care of that as well. But, but that, that um, at my phase of my career, when I'm busy operating and then I'm busy, I have a lot of referrals on my office days, it's, it would be impossible to see all the follow-ups as well. It just would be too much office time. Sure, sure. And, sure. Uh, so um, it's uh, it's not like vascular vascular surgery. They vascular surgeons end up, I think, seeing a lot more of their their long term post op patients and mm-hmm. or there's a, it's a more of a surgical and office based practice. Um, cardiac surgery weighs heavily more heavily towards <clears throat> an operative practice with uh, office being uh, sort of thrown in. Mm-hmm. And are a lot of these patients are they referred to you by like? people's PCPs or cardiologists, or I guess, how do they find their way towards you typically? So the, the vast majority is seen by a cardiologist before they get to me. Okay. The vast majority is very rarely a PCP. Sometimes a PCP will have a finding on a CT scan or an echo that they ordered. Okay. And just say, go see, go see your heart surgeon. And that often that's not like the correct sequence. Like you would prefer to have them seen by a cardiologist, but it, you know, it works out some, sometimes that's appropriate, but mostly it's cardiologists who have seen a patient and we know that they have, coronary disease or valve disease or heart failure or arrhythmia issues or aneurysm issues. And they get referred to us and we see them there. Um, so that most of them come by, by that route. 
Gotcha. Uh, and um, and then uh, then we have to make decisions about you know what what's an appropriate workup and are they a surgical candidate? And again, we, as I talked about, we try to if they are, what's the risk? What are the, what's the risk benefit ratio? Um, I I'm a um, really firm believer in really educating my patients as much as possible. So I I I try very hard uh, to explain things to them so they understand what the problem is, um, the nature of their diagnosis and the nature of the various treatments and what we're trying to achieve. And I, I think over the years, I've developed a pretty good standardized approach to a lot of those issues to explaining mm-hmm. what the problem is and, and how we fix these things. Um, you know, at the end of the day, they have to have confidence in you. They have to know, they have to know that you're going to do the right thing for them. Um, and I do, I believe in talking to patients and spending time with them. Sure. So, um, you know, I, I, um, I don't rush anybody and I, I don't, uh, if, if it means I'm long with one patient and late for the next, I explain that to everyone, look, everyone gets my time and we'll, um, we'll get through this. I, I just think it's, you know, your responsibility to make sure that they really understand what, what they're getting into uh-huh. and, um, and they have to trust you and they have to trust your team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. No, I've seen that with like when I can send people for like interventional radiology procedures, you know, which is it's sometimes even a little bit more abstract because of the minimally invasive nature of it. And I find it helps when you can explain to them exactly like what they're in their terms, like what's going on, what's right. going to happen, what could possibly go wrong. I can tell that, you know, to echo what you're saying, like the patients, they really appreciate because not every physician does that, unfortunately, I feel like yeah. these days, you know, and well, there, there are, I mean, yeah, and there are constraints. There's, there's a lot of, there's sure. a lot of pressure. You know, I gotta, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, don't underestimate, you know, this too. There's a lot of pressure. Yeah. There's time pressure. There's documentation pressure. There's mm-hmm. all kinds of you know, loopholes. You gotta, and boxes you gotta check just to get things done. And, and, and uh, so that's, you know, that's the, the downside to medicine, but in cardiac surgery, there's a lot of stress. There's sure. no question. There's a lot of stress. And, um, you have to, you have to learn to deal with that. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, I guess what's, what's your, like in your experience, especially like, and how the, I probably imagine this has probably evolved, you know, since the time you were a resident all the way, you know, till now, but like what kind of, what's your way of managing that stress? You know, cause I think, you know, everyone's seen either people who manage it well and people who don't manage it well. <laughs> and I know you have as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think. The first thing for anybody that's involved in like a, a, a especially where, the, where you can get into trouble fast is to learn, you have to learn to stay calm. Mm-hmm. It does not help you or the patient or your team to not stay calm. So um, you have to have confidence in the, in the, um, the advantage of staying calm. Um, and, um, that's really important. And you also, by doing that, you increase your odds of success in stressful situations, because if, if you're not calm or you're, you're agitated with, with people on your team, they don't perform well. Mm-hmm. So we, we know that there's a lot of objective evidence of that, a lot of data on that. So you have to stay calm. And um, when things are really, even when things are really going bad and there's a possibility of not doing well, you have to really keep your cool. Um, and uh, I suppose it doesn't really help you deal with stress. Just It's just a way of trying to get through it. Um, sure, managing the situation. Managing the situation. And um, I think that's, that's, that's very important. Um, and you don't always see that. And I've, we, I've, I've seen cardiac surgical teams that don't function well because the leader of the team is not calm or is mm. someone that throws a lot of blame or has a very um, um, hostile environment. Sure, that, sure. That used to be acceptable or accepted in surgery in general. And it's, it is not today, I don't think, and it should not be. Um, it's very destructive to have that kind of attitude with uh, in the OR with your team. You have to, you have to be a leader and be calm you know, work together as a team. Um, and you can see great things accomplished with that. I think too, um, 
you know, you have to, uh, you, you have to take time to decompress, you know, um, uh, cardiac surgery is both, uh, um, psychologically stressful at times, but is also physically stressful. It, it's not, it's, it's not physically easy because you're standing for a long time and you're, you're over a table and you're wearing loops and your, your, your neck can be in particular positions for a long period of time and you get dehydrated and, um, so you have to learn to take care of yourself. You have to learn to hydrate, you have to learn to make sure you, that you have a meal. You have to make sure that, that before a big case, you get some sleep. You have to make sure that, uh, that you're not overdoing it. I, when I was younger, I would do, I would do stupid things. You know, like I would be returning for a vacation on, on one day late in the evening and I have a big case scheduled next morning. It's like, that's just stupid. You know, or, uh, or I'd be leaving the town the next day and I would have a big, crazy case. You, you know, you have to, you have to, to think about those things mm-hmm. um, today. Uh, and back then too, I might have a case that or emergency that came in all night and I have cases scheduled the next day and I would do them. And I, I don't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel that I'm physically not at my best. I will postpone something or patients understand this. It's not like we've been up. Our team has been going all night and you're scheduled for today, but you have a collective case. I would recommend that we, we postpone because you want a fresh team. There's no reason to not do that. You make mistakes when you are not, when you are not rested and fresh. Sure. Sure. You don't have the um, uh, resilience. You know, once, once you've expended uh, and you don't know, you might be, you might be up all night and you, and you have a case the next day. You know, oh, it's just a standard, it's a routine two vessel bypass will be fine. But, but if you, but there's always the potential to get in trouble. Sure. Yeah. I remember you saying that to me, even yeah. with the, even with the simplest procedures, the you can, simplest procedure. any the can simplest go to, to can totally go to hell. <laughs> go to hell fast. You know, I think I told you that, you know, Ben there bought a t-shirt. You never assume that a case is a chip shot. Never. Um, and um, always, and, and, and so if you, so if you're, if you've, if, if you've expended all your energy, you're not well rested and you're in a, what you thought was going to be a chip shot case. And now it's not. Um, you're not going to, you, you may not have that extra um, strength to like really motor through or do your best. Sure. Uh, sure. So that's something that's, that's something I've, I've learned over the years. And that's, I'm sure you know, I'm older too. I don't have the same kind of strength to do those things as I used to do. But um, again, this is in the interest of both patient safety and outcomes and also your own physical and mental health. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. um I would say that, uh, you know, there's a lot of concern about burnout um, amongst physicians. Uh, I think the pandemic also highlighted that. And I would say that that's, that's very real. It's very sure. real. Sure. Um, you're going to have, if, you're, if you are in cardiac surgery, if you're contemplating cardiac surgery, you, you, you are going to have some, some, some bad days. Mm-hmm. You know, some days where you can't believe that this has happened. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's I've you know been there, um, and uh, um, maybe you've done an operation, had to go back for bleeding, and then you find out I got to go back for bleeding again. Same patients, you know, you have problems not fixed. Sure, sure. Uh, things like that happen, or someone you thought did you did a you did an amazing operation, and you leave the room, and the next thing you know, they're calling you back because they've coded, and you have no idea what's going on, and. Um, that, that kind of stuff happens and you just have to be prepared for that. So it's, you know, um, it's, it's a different kind of stress than like say interventional cardiology where they're in jeopardy all the time for having to come in at all hours of the night to do STEMIs. Sure. Sure. You know, they're on time, they have a time constraint. They, they have to get reperfusion within 90 minutes and, and they may get called in three or four times in a night or a day, mm-hmm. which is a lot. Yeah, anyway, yeah. you come in at midnight, do your thing, go home and get into bed. And at 2.45, they're calling you back for another one. And you go home. I mean, that's hard. That's not <clears throat> what happens typically in cardiac surgery today. We are, we are, we're not called in a lot for a lot of night work at this point because patients can be stabilized with, you know, with intervention. But we still, we have long days and late days because mm-hmm. you cannot leave an operating room until things are right. Sure. Sure. Everything has to be right. You, you can't say, well, this, this is kind of good enough for now. I'm coming. I'm tired. Or it's been a long day. We're coming back. It's like, no, it has to, they, 
everything has to be working. You know, heart function has to be appropriate and stable, and and there has to be no bleeding. And you, um, um, you know, everything has to be. You you when you leave the room, you you have to leave knowing that you've that everything is is done. Um, uh, and, and there's a mental aspect of that. I remember when I was younger, you know, you'd finish your bypass grafts and whatever you're doing, and then you would close up. But by the time you're closed up, you're kind of like, you're ready to get, get done. You want to wrap it up. Sure. And, and you'd be back for bleeding because you weren't careful enough mm-hmm. to dry up. So now our, you know, for years now, my, our mantra on our team has been, we don't come back. <laughs> so, so what we do is we say, as, you, as we finish whatever we're doing, the bypasses or the valve, come off pump decannulated and now it's our habit our mantra at some point one of us says we're not coming back which is our clue our key our prompt to take a pause remember it's not miller time yet yeah yeah <laughs> so we so we go it's like nope we're not coming back and and we just dry up extra, you know we're just extra careful sure sure and, um i think that works so it's a little it's a it's a an informal tradition and pause that we have but i think it actually has some real benefit yeah so, sure no that makes sense yeah what i guess when you are on call what are the things type of things you would get called in to do like where you have to you know actually you know obviously some of it you can triage over the phone or something but where you'd actually have to come in and and do a case emergently in the middle yeah of the well day. someone who's someone who's who is uh ischemic and there's no pci option for them okay, okay. Or, there's, or there's just a lot of disease that can't be handled with stenting um, or failed stenting, mm-hmm. um, patients who have mechanical complications of infarction, like acute MR um, due to cortical you know, um, or their papillary muscle ruptures, um, acute aortic dissections or a surgical emergency. Mm-hmm. In our system, those are it's kind of it's regionalized, so those those get transferred up to Cleveland Clinic Maine, and we've shown that that approach actually results in better outcomes. So instead of having our surgeons like at Akron General or Hillcrest Hospital and Fairview, they're all part of the system handling, you know, three or four aortic dissections a year. They all go up to Maine and they get, they, even with the trans, the transfer time delaying somewhat their initial therapy, the outcomes are really, are very, very good. Oh, but, you know, depending on what your practice is, you mean we get called in for aortic dissections. Those always happen at odd hours. Those always at two or three in the morning. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the other thing that I get called back in for are patients that we operate on who unexpectedly, have a bad turn. You know, we yeah. see that. You know, they may be fine, and then at three in the morning, say, "Well, he just started putting out a lot of blood. What's happened? I don't know." And we we have to go back. Um, and fortunately, again, that's not common. So, so we we try to handle that up front. Mm-hmm. Um, so so a lot of a lot of our cases are what we would categorize as urgent, meaning that there are patients who are in hospital because of a non-ST elevation infarction or other infarction, they can't go home. So they have to be operating while they're in the hospital. And then there are others that are more elective or done outpatient. And then occasionally have someone that's truly emergent. But the majority of our practice is not emergent. And there's a small, small percentage. It's what we would call salvage patients that you ought to operate on, but you know that there's a high chance that they're just not going to do well. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. We don't do many of those. We, tr- we try very hard to. When I first started in practice, I think we kind of took everybody. We just, you know, just tried we, it. Yeah. Just, just let the chips fall where they may. But today we, we're much more careful. Sure. And we also try very hard, as I said, today, it's a much more collaborative approach. Back in the day, when I first started, the cardiologist would call and say, I've got a guy here who's, you know, unstable, needs bypass. Come on in. Bye. There wasn't much discussion about, you know, what are our options here? What, mm-hmm. what's, what's, what's the strategy? What are, what, what was, what's plan A? What's plan B? Is surgery the only option? Is is stenting the only option? Mm-hmm. Is there a staged approach that might be better? Um, you know, those are important discussions to have. And fortunately, I, fortunately, I work with a really, really, really great team of, of cardiologists and cardiac surgeons that work together. Um, and um, that's something I would say to you know someone that's considering going into this and is going to you know, join a practice, some practice at some point is look very carefully at the practice dynamics. Mm-hmm. Are they really a team? Cause if they're, if they're not really a team. Your life, your life as a surgeon can be pretty miserable. 
you know, and you're not going to be doing the best for your patients. It's, it, it, it helps to be able to collaborate a lot. Sure. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. I think going off that, what is, what's kind of the new like innovations and in technology and cardiac surgery? What's, what's kind of like the new, I think you've touched on this with like Tavers and things like that, but I, I, I know. I would say, you know, Taver is a, is a huge um, paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that was initially technology offered to patients who could not undergo surgery for their aortic valves. And, and then, and we, I think it was approached very rationally. We looked at outcomes, you know, and, and, and looked at patients who were very high risk. Then, then we looked at patients who were a moderate risk and, and even low risk patients. And we're finding that that technology in appropriately, in appropriately selected patients is, you know, is um, not inferior to surgery. And and wow. and um, and that patients today have many patients have an option. Um, like any other technology, can be misused. I mean, not every patient who has aortic valve disease should be getting a TAVR valve. A young patient, particularly a young patient who has true bicuspid valve disease, um, TAVR is really probably not the best option. And certainly, a patient that has aortic valve disease and coronary disease, that kind of anatomy, it's not not the best option. You want to give them, you know most durable operation. Um, and so that's why the heart team approach with that is important. But I will tell you that the availability of technology has expanded our capability to, to treat people mm-hmm. who are very ill, who previously had no options. So one of the very first patients we did as a TAVR at Akron was an elderly lady, she was in the 80s, I think. She was in acute heart failure with poor heart function, acute kidney failure, um, very debilitated at that point, it's other issues, respiratory insufficiency. And the, the notion that the plan was to make her hospice. Wow. She was going to be hospice. And we reviewed her and we did, um, we did a balloon valvoplasty to sort of get her out of trouble, which improved her, again, optimization, mm-hmm. you know, temporarily got her out of failure. It is improved, made her a good candidate for TAVR. She had a TAVR valve. And uh, when we contacted that lady to see if she would want to be interviewed, you know, for her experience as a TAVR patient, she refused because she was, she was on vacation, didn't have time to deal with us. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I remember, I remember talking to our, our um, what do you call it, our um, communications team, you know, wanted to do a story on her because she had been sure. very young and she was very successfully treated. So they asked me to call her to get her permission. So I called her and I thought she'd be like, you know, most patients, when you ask them to participate, something they're very, they're very enthusiastic. Sure, sure. So I called her and I go, hi, you know, from the Taver team here, we were wondering if I want to tell your story. It's a great story. I'm like, hell no. I'm on vacation. I got to go. Bye. And she hung up. <laughs> yeah, she, but, but the point is, I mean, that lady was, was going to be, you know, left in hospice. She would have been dead. Um, and, uh, we just did a 91 year old like that. I, he's a businessman, retired, super sharp, very sharp guy. Um, again, was very ill with, uh, Eric stenosis. He, we stabilized him with a balloon valvoplasty, brought him back in the tavern. He went home the next day. Patients with tavern go home the next day, typically, sometimes the same day, I think at the main campus now. That's amazing. That's, wow. Yeah, it's, it's it's phenomenal technology. It's amazing. And then there's there's the application of it to what we call valve and valve, where patients who had previous bioprosthetic surgical valve or previous TAVR valve, when that valve degenerates, the new valve is put in, again, in a catheter-based fashion, so without a redo sternotomy. And that seems to be very effective as well. So that, that technology has been a big paradigm shift. Um, I would say... Um, you know, robotic approaches to the mitral valve um, is also a, um, a game changer. I think that um, um, the um, arrhythmia surgery, we, we now know that there are definite benefits to, tr- to being aggressive, tr- treating atrial fibrillation surgically at the time of surgery. And there are other less invasive ways to do that. You know, that's, that's uh, um, uh, been a big uh, benefit. Um, and, and I, I would say too, that the, our ability to, to, to treat complex, um, aortic disease with uh, catheter based technologies or, com- or combined surgical catheter based. I mean, I, I, I mean, that's not my specialty at this point, but that that's, I mean, I don't even understand half what they're doing anymore there. Mm-hmm. 
you know, the guys that do that, at, uh, like in our, our aortic team, I mean, the things that they're able to do mm-hmm. that people through have, who have just horrible aortic problems, diffuse mm-hmm. aortic problems. Um, do you, do you see our cardiac surgeons evolving, like how vascular surgeons did where now maybe some of the newer trained surgeons are starting to do more like a mix of open and endovascular type procedures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. I think that that's uh, that that's naturally going to happen. I think that, uh, um, you know, they talk about the development of what they call cardiovascular specialists as opposed to cardiac surgeons and interventional cardiologists. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think realistically, there will always be a need for someone that is a cardiac surgeon. Sure. That that can actually operate in, in an open surgical fashion. I don't think that that you know. Um, so if you want to be involved in catheter-based techniques, I mean, we are involved, and I, I think there's probably room to be more involved and and to be trained in those skills. But ultimately, I think you there will always have to be, if you're truly a cardiac surgeon, you have to be able to operate. Um, sure. Um, and because there, there are just situations where the disease process is complex or combined or complications happen. We, you know, we have TAVR, you know, people that undergo TAVRs where there's rupture of the aortic annulus and you end up having to open them and replace their valve. Wow. You know, your catheter is not going to help you at that point. You have yeah. to be. <laughs> um, and, and, um, that's a sticky situation. Um, and that's why, in the Tabor realm, cardiac surgeons are integral part of the, of the team. Mm-hmm. And so I go, every Tabor is a cardiac surgeon. I go in to help. Normally don't have to do a lot of it with them, but I want to be involved. And I, I stick around and make sure that I'm part of, the, part of the process and we're sure that there's no problem like tamponade or rupture. Or, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, and um, so, yeah, I, the other, I think the other you know, a big change in cardiac surgery and, and somewhat of a debate is, you know, what's the best way to train a cardiac surgeon today? Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. Kind of like the new, yeah. you know, those new integrated pathways versus right. the more, the more traditional pathway that like what you did. And I think probably still to this day, would you say most cardiac surgeons are probably still trained through that traditional pathway? I honestly don't know how it shakes out. Okay. I don't know. You know, um, I, I do know that we have a lot of medical students who rotate with us. Some of whom are very interested in cardiac surgery I, I, I would say that the majority of them seem to be more interested in doing an integrated process. Mm-hmm. Um, I think probably because it's, it's deemed to be more di- a more direct route to cardiac surgery. And I think potentially um, because you may actually spend more time doing cardiac surgery. Sure, sure. Um, but I think that there's also some debate about how well-trained they are um, because you... Um, you have to, it's cardiac, you know, cardiac surgery is technically difficult. Sure, sure. And it takes time to become technically competent. Mm-hmm. And um, there, there are those who would argue that going through a full general surgical training um, gets people to be good operators. Sure. Um, and um, so I would imagine like a lot of those skills, even though it's, you know, bowel surgery or other, you know, other types of surgery like an, you know, suturing and anastomosis, those are all transferable to yes, doing cardiac surgery. Yeah. You just have to be, it just becomes, it's even more technically dependent when you get to cardiac surgery. So, mm-hmm. so I, I could say, for example, that, if, you know, when I, when I did my cardiac surgical training at University of Michigan, I already done five years of general surgery residency and, and two years in a cardiac surgical lab doing surgery. Mm-hmm. And at University of Michigan, one of the big advantages of that program for me was that they believed in having you operate right away. Mm-hmm. So we operated on every, you know, we were operating immediately. You were not a bystander. You were on the surgeon side of the table. But that was predicated on us being able to operate. Sure, sure. Now, I, I think it would be very hard to take someone who's in maybe an integrated program where they have not had much actual operating experience. How does a, it, it begs the question, how does a cardiac surgeon train someone in more basic surgical techniques. Sure. Because they're really not, there's there's not much opportunity in in a cardiac surgical case to do that. You know, like it's it's different. Like when you're a general surgeon and they're saying, we're going to take you through a hernia. Yeah. 
you're going to be able to, you'll be doing most of this and it takes about an hour to hand, you know, how it takes, you know, right. But you can hand over stuff and watch things and you're not going to get in trouble. But the cardiac operation, what do you hand over to someone that's had a year of training or two of training? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, what do you, what do you, what are you going <laughs> yeah, to say? Like, here, you can do this, you know, like, let me see how you, you know, let's, let me show you how to do this. Mm-hmm. That's just not to me. And you know, it's a, it's a time sensitive process too. You got to cr- cross clamp on, you got to check the heart. You don't have time to be taking your time. Right. Right. So, so that's a trick. You know, I, I think what I've advised medical students have come my way who are applying. Um, I, I have ad- advised them to look at every program individually. Okay. Look at them individually. You know, don't assume that you need to be in or want to be in an integrated program or, or the standard uh, um, you know, gen surge, cardiac surgery approach. Look at them all individually and definitely talk to the residents who are involved in the program and find out are they operating you know are they are they really learning to operate mm-hmm. um and that's really important and are they happy in their program that's important sure sure you, know, you get one shot to learn this and and so you want to be in a program that actually is going to teach you to do it because there, there's the travesty that we've all seen of people who have finished a program who cannot operate right right sometimes it's the response it's the it's a problem with the program, I think, and sometimes a problem with the trainee and sometimes it's both, but mm-hmm. sometimes a program graduates someone that can't operate or shouldn't be operating. Right. right. The, so so what I what I tell the medical students that ask me is to look at every program, just look at them individually and talk, mm-hmm. definitely talk to the residents and sit them down. They'll tell you. They'll let you know what the truth of the matter is. Sure. Are they happy? Are they learning to operate? Are they confident? Do they know what they're doing? Are they are they treated with respect? Um, are they supported? Um, I think it was one, you know one of the things I loved about training at University of Michigan was it was the whole raison d'etre of the program was to teach you to operate. You were not there as labor or as a body. Sure, uh, you were there to learn. It was an educational program. Mm-hmm. And um, so you had you operate, and we were treated with a lot of respect. We were not; uh, it was not a um, situation where, where we were being beaten up. We were treated with with great respect, um, and um, and for that, I owe them a, a great debt. You know, to teaching me to operate. I had some really great professors there that uh, that taught me well. Um, sure. But that being said, you know the the. I just had a junior partner join me recently who's trained at Cornell, got excellent training, and he brings things to, to our practice that I was not trained in. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a, something that, you know, that um, that I have to deal with at this stage of my career. I, I, when I trained, there were things were very different, and there are things that he's been exposed to that that I have no exposure to. But again, it gets to that that concept of a team and collaboration. I have a partner who is sharing a lot of stuff with me. I, I'm sharing my experience with him and he's sharing stuff with me. Sure, sure. And we work together and it, 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 it helps us provide great patient care. Mm-hmm. So, um, and uh, sometimes I get asked like, would you do it again? You know, like, would you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I would have to say, yes, I would. Um, I think, um, uh, it's an incredibly rewarding career uh, because you do save lives and you um, you accomplish uh, things in operating that, that make people better and give them back to their families and allow them to do things. And um, that's really, that's, there's nothing quite that, like that. I remember, you know, my father was a general surgeon and he taught me a lot about patient satisfaction. I remember I used to be his driver when he was going on house calls. And he took me to, I think I've told you this, uh-huh. to a house one night, a guy who was in urinary retention, the poor man was just in excruciating discomfort and pain. And my dad uh, catheterized him and drained his, uh, his bladder. And, and the guy was in tears. He was so relieved. And we, we walked out and um, he said, uh, because um, you know, you see how how relieved that guy was, how appreciative he was. And I said, "Yeah." He goes, "There's no amount of money in the world that will give you the feeling that I have right now." 
I, you know, I helped that guy out and that makes me, that's very gratifying. And he's, he's a very happy man now. He's relieved. So I get this same kind of thing. I think, I think, you know, like this morning I had a patient that we saw was post op day two, who um, we talked to her she did, and she was doing really well. And I said, you did, you did great, you know? And she, she goes, oh, I'm really happy. She goes, I, I didn't know if, I didn't think I was going to get through this. I didn't, wow. I, I was really expecting not to, not to wake up. And I said, well, we expected you to, but that's, you know, she didn't share that with us. Sure. sure. That's, but that's how she felt. Mm-hmm. Wrapping things up here. Um, if someone, if someone is like, you know, I guess what I get asked a lot is med students trying to decide, you know, make that big decision on what they're going to go and do. Yeah. If someone's kind of in that, you know, they're in their third year rotations, maybe they're on surgery. They really like it. They like, they do some cardiac cases. They really like it. I guess, what's your advice to people kind of making that big decision? I remember you you've provided me with a lot of good advice with that. Like how do you really so, do like that self-reflection and that, that decision? Well, one, one thing that I think you did very well is, is that you, you, you investigated by getting on the ground, you know, you were with many things. I mean, you know, um, you spent a lot of time in cardiac surgery, you spent a lot of time in research, you spent a lot of time with ortho, you spent a lot of time in radiology. You, I mean, you really got into the weeds and understood what, what was really going on, what life was like. I think the I, I think that for a medical student is inter, interested in cardiac surgery to just have a cursory rotation, maybe a week on the cardiac surgery service during their general surgery resident, uh, rotation is not enough mm-hmm. to make any kind of decision. And what I would say is that they, they should avail themselves of any opportunity, either in their own school or other hospital systems to, to do a month of cardiac surgery. That's what I would do. I would find a place. I would do a month of cardiac surgery somewhere as an elective if they can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that, that I found very helpful that probably is not so available today is I did a research elective at, when I was a medical student at Hopkins in a cardiac surgery lab where they oh, okay. where they let me operate on on pigs. Oh wow! Nell is laughing. <laughs> so I would operate on pigs uh, doing cardiac surgical experiments. But I had to I had to do sternotomy. I had to to um, put them on pump um, and then you know, do, you know, do whatever the protocol was, but that, and, and, and I learned a lot. I wasn't working with any surgeons directly. I was working with some residents and also with a, an animal research guy. Now today, I don't know, if, I don't know how much that's done anymore, mm-hmm. um, but it was a great opportunity. I mean, I, you know, I, I had to learn to, to handle instruments and to, to learn a bit about cardiac anatomy and what, what bypass, what is cardiopulmonary bypass? How do you do it? Mm-hmm. Um, I just learned an awful lot about that. And I, I again, in my residency, I took you know, two years and did very similar sort of thing, much, much more intensive um, animal research work, working with, again, with pigs and, um, and rat hearts and stuff like that, using different modalities. But, but those were invaluable operative experiences and, and taught me an awful lot about cardiac physiology the physiology of ischemia, um, uh, the, the conduct of cardiopulmonary bypass, um, principles of myocardial protection. Um, there's some ancillary things that you learn from doing that kind of experimental work, and that is resilience and perseverance, because you set up these surgical experiments and, and things invariably go wrong yeah. and start all over again. Um, and uh, you just have to that's one thing that I think that, that you pick up when you do that kind of work. Um, sure. And you also learn to question and be skeptical of your initial impressions um, uh, because the, the data often um, shows that you're lying to yourself about what you think is true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, that's what I would do. I think probably today, the most important thing would be getting a dedicated rotation in cardiac surgery. Sure, sure. Um, and uh, and getting into it, and when you when they do that, try as hard as possible to function as a member of the team. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's important, you know. To to you have to be want to work at this. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, uh, it's great if you know a lot about cardiac physiology and you've read the books and you're book smart and you show up and you. And then you take off at dinner time and you're gone for the day. Yeah, yeah. Because people know that's not what it's like to be a surgeon. Sure, sure. Um, surgeons leave when the work is done. Mm-hmm. 
um, that's just the nature of it. Right. Um, right. And so uh, that's what I would do. Gotcha. No, I think that's, that's great advice. I get, I guess to close out here, we ask everybody this, what do you do when you're not doing cardiac surgery? What do you, how do you, what do I do? Yeah. What do you, how do you spend Let's your time? <laughs> you the question? What do I do when I'm not working? What do I do? What did we do tonight? What do we do? Play. What do we play? We went on a bike ride. We went on a bike ride. Nice. What do we do? What do we do yesterday? We, <laughs> we played squash, right? Yeah. You know, so I, I play squash. I play with my kids. I bike, ride my bike. I read. Um, I like to travel with my family. We haven't done much since the pandemic started, but a little bit. Sure, sure. Uh, I like to read history. Um, but I love spending time with my kids. I have four kids, and I don't. Get, you know, that's one thing about cardiac surgery is, you know, you're not going to be home at three in the afternoon with your kids. You have to you have to maximize your time with your kids. Sure, sure. So. Awesome. Well, Joe, thanks so much for uh, coming on this podcast with us. We, we really appreciate your your insights and your your uh, very uh, interesting experiences and, and uh, sharing that with us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. It's good to see you. I'm glad you're. I'm so impressed by all the things you've accomplished. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this episode of the Da Vinci Hour, brought to you by Da Vinci Academy. More episodes are available on our website at dviacademy.com, our YouTube channel. They're also available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also on our website, you can find our video courses for anatomy, biochemistry, and histology, and they're available as month-to-month packages. They're also available as a combo package where you can get all three courses in one. Our website also has a store where you can find our outline format textbooks for anatomy, biochemistry, and histology. All textbooks are available in paperback version and as ebooks as well. These textbooks complement our video courses and provide a nice addition to the learning experience of allowing you to focus on the learning and not having to write anything down. On our website, we also provide a free clinical cases video series called Da Vinci Cases. Da Vinci Cases aims to help you learn how to answer USMLE questions and apply concepts that you learn in our courses to answering those questions. Our cases cover a variety of topics and organ systems, and they're updated frequently with new cases. And then lastly on our website, you can find our blog, which has interesting articles that cover medical history, important figures in medicine, and innovations in medicine. Again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Da Vinci Hour, brought to you by Da Vinci Academy. Please be sure to tune in for our next episode.